Hello, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration, brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Welcome to Siren Coffee and Science. Julia Adler-Milstein, I'm a professor of medicine and director of the Center for Clinical Informatics and Improvement Research at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's conversation is the second of four coffee and science events on topics related to adjustment, which refers to healthcare activities that change clinical care to accommodate patient social conditions. I'm excited to talk today with Dr. Tiffany Vino, who is a professor of health behavior and health education, cross-appointed at the School of Information and the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan. Uh, for the next half hour, Tiffany and I are going to talk about opportunities for the field of informatics to inform social care adjustment strategies. So let's get started. Our topic today is opportunities for informatics to inform social care adjustment strategies. I think we should start with addressing the question of roles for health informatics and health equity, since I suspect that's not an area within health informatics that's widely understood. So Tiffany, what are your thoughts on that? So just to start off with, I'll say that it's important to recognize that it's not a formally recognized domain, but if one takes a social definition of a discipline, I would say that there's a social uh, group that's gathering together, that's starting to focus in this area, and some of the landmarks around that have been a computing community consortium supported national workshop in 2018, which resulted in a published research agenda on roles for technology and health disparities. Also, there was a JAMIA special issue on health equity and the WISH workshop, which happens regularly at the AMIA conference, uh, took place last year and had a focus on digital health equity. So I see those as kind of continuing events that have helped to knit together a community that's forming around that. So how would you characterize the subset of health informatics work on health equity? And why do we need these special groups and special forums? What makes it different? So I think one is the uniting purpose. So the uniting purpose is to use technology, I think, to describe, explain, and reduce health disparities and improve the health specifically of marginalized populations. I also think that it has specific concepts and theories that are unique, like a focus on unintended consequences of technology, especially intervention-generated inequality, uh, work around equity impacts of existing interventions and analyses of heterogeneity and treatment effects, upstream informatics interventions that try to operate at the mezzo or macro level, um, trust-centered design, contextualization of interventions, which in the computing field tends to be more about context-aware computing, um, strengths-based approaches, um, et cetera. It's a lot there. Um, and it seems like it's a lot of content as well as some methodological approaches that maybe are particularly relevant. Does that feel right to you? 
I think that's true. I'd say some of the methods that maybe I'd see as being especially emblematic of this approach would be things like participatory methods that engage marginalized communities, like community-based participatory research and the participatory design approach more from the computing uh, field. Also having more like from the HCI part of our contributing discipline, looking at more experimental systems that look at things like how do marginalized groups interact with different features of navigation, as well as things like equity sensitive recruitment methods and things like that. And who are the types of scholars and other participants who are coming to these events? Is it like a heterogeneous mix or are they predominantly coming from one traditional disciplinary field or background? I would say it's a heterogeneous mix. There's definitely people from health informatics. There's people from behavioral medicine, people who might be considered more health disparities scholars, and then a lot of folks from human-computer interaction, and then some who might be more characterized as coming from more like critical social science traditions. Interesting. It's going to be so interesting to see how this develops and formalizes. So how would you characterize social care informatics as a domain as we think about, as this starts to translate into sort of traditional care delivery? What does that intersection look right. like? Right. So I think of social care informatics as being uh, a complementary area with some overlap with the broad area of health equity informatics. So I would say that I think some of the differences are that there's possibly a greater focus on specifically the care setting and more using clinical technologies. I think that that's not necessarily always the case in a lot of the other work on health equity. Also, there's more emphasis on things like policy questions like interoperability between nonprofits and healthcare organizations and you know, more focus on EHRs as data sources and you know, some of your work looking at digital traces in EHRs and things like that. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, when you think about clinical settings, many of us work hospitals and doctor's offices, like traditional settings. But I know, you know, one of your large studies was situated in dialysis centers. And I'm just curious how you think about the settings of care that are most important to target and how they may not be the usual suspects. Right. I mean, I, I think that the places where marginalized people are getting care and in conditions where there is a disproportionate impact of conditions on marginalized groups, I think that those would be like places to hone in. Um, so certainly dialysis care is one that, that I've taken an interest in. Lots of people have worked in things like federally qualified health centers, um, including myself. And then there are certain places where you know specialist care might also be particularly relevant, like endocrinology and things like that. So I think it's really following where, you know, where the disparity populations are seeking care. Great background to maybe dive into more details on the concept of social care adjustment strategies. So in the last podcast, Dr. Gold gave a bunch of specific examples of adjustment strategies that were really focused around adjusting care plans to better fit individual social context. I'm curious in your world, when people ask you about examples of adjustment strategies, which are the top ones that come to mind? Right. So one area is in our work with diabetes care with our former PhD student, Charles Sentio, in his dissertation work, he looked at treatment goals as one of the things that people were adjusting based on social needs. So he saw, for example, that HbA1c targets were being changed and altered in some cases because of concern about hypoglycemic episodes. So especially cases where people didn't have stable housing or kitchen facilities, or there were issues related to having social support to help in an emergency if someone had a hypoglycemic episode. So he saw people talking about adjusting 
care in that way. Also, I've seen choice of therapy. So for example, I do some work in the area of rural health and, you know, there's work around uh, my partners in the Midwestern health system where cancer care is sometimes altered to try to reduce transportation burdens in particular um, around receiving treatment for things like chemotherapy. And then in terms of like how, what the logistics are around providing care in dialysis care, that comes out a lot in terms of how one schedules care. So I've worked with people who've talked about adjusting for the morning shift or the afternoon or an evening or a nocturnal shift, depending on things like people's work schedule or when they have childcare or other things that are going on in their lives that are affecting them. Also things like adjusting medications that have negative side effects like phosphorus binders that can make it difficult for people to attend social events like church, which is critical for uh, social integration for some folks. So, you know, those would be a few of the things. And then I guess one thing that Rachel talked about a lot was the idea of adjusting medication selection based on cost. I would also add the nuance that I've also seen people talking about things like reducing the overall burden of medication in order to reduce cost. Yeah, great. I, I love all those examples. I think it really broadens the, the notion. But I'm also struck by the fact it just seems like the right thing to do. Like, why are we now naming it and calling it out? feels like that's the type of care we all always should have been delivering. So I'm just curious how you think about it. Like, is this, have we always been doing it and now we're just naming it? Or it has, has this been sort of a blind spot? And so now we really are coming to it and by giving it a name and attention, it's helping people focus on it. In my work, I'm often talking to people who are sensitized to the topics around social needs and risks. And so we're seeing people who are already practiced at taking into it into account. But I would say that it's not necessarily always the case that providers would be. So you know, there's always a certain kind of selection bias in the qualitative work that I've done with providers because those are people who can talk about the issue, right? Uh, whereas that I would believe that there are people who can't or who don't necessarily have a top of mind. So I think that, you know, there's a whole group of people that are, haven't necessarily been doing that or haven't been reached potentially. And then I think also Rachel's argument has been that it hasn't necessarily been systematic and things get missed. And I think that that is true. Yeah, no, really great points. And it sort of leads into the next question around when we think about informatics tools, which is only one type of tool, where do you see the most important opportunities for supporting this broader movement towards adjustment and making sure that it doesn't, as you said, just happen in specific settings that do it all the time, but can be just part of routine care everywhere? Right. So I think one thing that is very important is to put more attention on the various health professions that are doing work on health disparities as a part of their mandates now. You know, everybody wants to kind of create things for the physicians. Um, that's often the first group that comes to mind and things get designed for those groups first. And I think there's a huge amount of burden, in fact, on that clinical consultation at point of care. Um, there's so many people who want to influence what doctors do. You know, I, I think that's important, but I also think that a lot of burden on those healthcare point of care type tools. And, you know, we've heard a lot about alert fatigue and things like that. And trying to back away a bit from putting more pressure on that, that consultation would be valuable and more looking at tools for nurses, looking at tools for social workers, looking at tools for pharmacists, looking at tools for community health workers and patient navigators and trying to help them do their work better. I think that's a very important thing. Mm -hmm. Also support for 
complex assessments and calculations is a really important thing. There's so much information that's presented to clinicians that doesn't necessarily help to arrive at a conclusion or necessarily support more kind of high-level cognitive things that are necessary. So I would tend to think that risk assessments, so clinicians do a lot of risk assessments. Risk assessments are difficult. (laughs) They're a very difficult thing to do, especially on the fly. You know, when I think about things like hypoglycemia risk, I think of that as being a really great candidate for trying to provide additional support or things that require trying to integrate a lot of different streams of information to arrive at a conclusion. So some of the work that I've done on costs of medication, you know, what we're hearing from both patients and clinicians is they want to be considering multiple factors simultaneously. They don't want just an alert about what the cost is or whether it's covered by insurance, but they also want to be thinking about efficacy and side effects and other aspects of fitting this medication into somebody's life and treatment goals. So I'd say that. And then the other thing I would say is support for interpretation for clinicians that helps with information processing about patients. So things that help with organizing or prioritizing or highlighting or visualizing information, I think are really important. And we're going to talk a little bit more about narrative, I think. And narrative would, for me, be one of the candidates there. It might be an overly simplistic framework when I at least think about informatics tools. I think about those that might identifying the opportunity for adjustment, right? Because it may be that like a set of humans might miss those. And then those that actually support the decision around how to adjust. Mm -hmm. And then there's, I think what you described as well as actually implementing that adjustment. (laughs) Like, how do you put it into practice? How do you make sure that everyone understands it? And I don't know, is that, is that like a helpful framework to think about types of opportunities for informatics and how to target each of them because they have a different use case, like in those three areas? I think that is helpful. I think I might add that I would also probably start with a baseline analysis of what is it, like where are the disparities and what's driving them? Uh, Because often the social needs are kind of underlying those particular disparities. And I, I guess another thing I would also be saying is I think it's because of that burden around trying to get people to process so much information during during healthcare visits and things, I would also be identifying what things really could be policy changes. So what are the things that we can apply routinely that really don't need to be like this particular person? So I think that would be another thought too. Well, I mean, you, you know that you're, you're preaching to the choir on the policy front. I mean, you know, so many of these issues, it feels like we wouldn't even need to adjust for them if we could solve them upstream. It's, I think it's actually a really important point. Like, how do we keep that balance of doing the needed adjustment, given where we are at any moment in time, but also not forgetting to do the work of trying to avoid the need for adjustment by addressing the social need? Both are just so important. Right. I think so. And then also, like, policies within healthcare organizations, because Obviously, once you start making decisions that are different for different people, you know, that can be great patient-centered care, but it also can represent or be an example of bias. And so identifying those cases where things are applied routinely, sometimes that can be a solution to address bias. What are some ways to ensure that adjusted care doesn't have unintended consequences by effectively establishing a lower standard of care? for those populations? It's the million dollar question, right? Is we want to adjust, but adjust equitably. I have one answer that is probably not the most satisfying one, but one is that I actually think this is an empirical question and there should be some investigation about whether the outcomes are improved for folks who are experiencing major barriers to care by 
prescribing a medication that they can afford, for example, that may not be the highest and most current medication, but if that improves adherence enough to be able to actually improve outcomes, does it actually close a gap in some way? So, so I think that there's an empirical question. I think we need to study that. So I think that's important. Another thing is to be very cautious about how we study anything or implement anything and to always be looking for unintended consequences and building that into any study. So some kind of qualitative work that's probing for unintended consequences and establishing equity measures as a part of any study that is specifically looking for differential effects that could be magnified. That, you know, those are a couple of more research-oriented aspects of it. And I think that, you know, there's the possibility to try to guard against um, unintended consequences through some well-known approaches. If you're looking at trying to deploy a technology, for example, there, there's I have a paper on called Good Intentions Are Not Enough that talks about methods to try to guard against um, intervention generating inequalities. And we kind of propose things to consider at every stage of an intervention cycle. And I think you know that model is one that could be used to really be thinking about other kinds of treatments as well. Absolutely. I mean, almost every health services research question is about trade-offs. It's very rare that you get to win on all. So it's, it's really, as you said, being thoughtful about what are the trade-offs and which ones are appropriate. So let's see, the interesting question that came through around, you know, examples of using risk adjustment to adapt visit time. So for example, if patients have more social risk factors, should they get longer visits? I'm curious if you had you know, heard about that or sort of similar ones where it really is trying to adjust almost the, the infrastructure and, and process piece rather than just the clinical decision making piece. In our paper with Charles that was in Jamia, one of the things that people talk about is providing more, uh, this is based on what clinicians have to say. So these clinicians were talking about having more frequent follow-up visits with folks who had greater social needs to try to help keep them on track with a complex regimen. So I've definitely heard about that. I also know that in the VA, that has been a practice to give longer visits were necessary as well. And I, you know, I think that's important. And, you know, we talk about trade-offs, trying to pick interventions that work better for marginalized groups sometimes might be a way to go to try to close gaps as well. Uh, and so, you know, longer visits may be something that works better for a marginalized group. So this question is about whether patients are basically asking for adjustments versus clinicians doing the inferring that an adjustment is appropriate. And again, have you sort of encountered that? I mean, again, my guess is both are out there, but do you see that one is more predominant than another? In a project that we did in which we interviewed 18 patients who had been in contact with like a population health initiative at a healthcare system in the Midwest, we found that there was a very strong desire for their clinicians to especially be thinking about healthcare costs. So they wanted their clinicians to be talking to them about medications and to be you know, sharing with them opportunities to pick medications that might be more affordable alongside other criteria. They didn't think that things like tests could be a major concern. They could, prices could be changed, but if it could happen, they'd love to see the ability to shop around for medical tests. And they also talked about wanting a lot more cooperation between billing departments and clinical departments. So for example, their doctor would know if they have a massive medical debt in their healthcare system so that they could be able to not be just adding more costly care on top of it, but to be thinking in more judiciously about what's needed. So yes, I'd say the cost is the one where we see people asking for it the most. 
very tangible. What equity measures do you think are most easy to use in getting started? So like, do you have a set of measures that you find are easiest to integrate into your research when you're thinking about equity or are there sort of industry standard uh, measures that are kind of the, the first ones that people tend to use? I would say not necessarily a measure so much as a, an analytic method. So I think planning evaluations that have large enough populations that there are subsamples to allow for subgroup analysis. I think of that you know, set of methods as being quite critical. So allowing for things like subgroup analysis and moderation analysis, uh, other approaches to heterogeneity and treatment effect approach. I think that's if I had to say to do one thing, <laughs> that would be like the thing to be looking for differences um, in outcomes and you know picking where you know that something is driven by a disparity, trying to pick an outcome that's relevant to that. That makes sense. And that probably would, would and should never be like a single measure, right? It's sort of about looking across a set of relevant measures and seeing how each one is, is, is affected. But one of the really interesting insights from your work is the tension between the patient narrative that's so important when we're talking about social needs and the push towards standardization of documentation and capture of social needs, particularly in electronic health records. And in general, I would say I'm like a very big fan of standards because I think they have so many benefits in terms of ability to use the data and and you know, in the interoperability world, standards are so important. But here I really feel ambivalent because it seems like adjustment strategies might not be effective uh, if we lose the narrative and all we have is a numerical score or a checkbox response. So I don't know. I want to be optimistic and think we can get the best of both worlds, but like then you're checking boxes and writing a lot. And we know our frontline clinicians wouldn't be excited about that. So Right. You know, I don't know that you have the answer. If you do, please share it. But if not, like, how do you think about at least how research can help guide us towards the optimal solution and understand what the trade-offs are? Right. One thing to note is that at least in studies I've seen, the work that we've done where people have been working with structured tools, um, there's a drive to keep, to keep, to maintain narrative. So people are still using narrative. They're writing things in to help contextualize things. They're still writing stories that they help them understand and empathize with the patient's situation. They write summaries and things like that that help to trigger memory. In the push to standardization, narrative is something that's valued by clinicians. And I've seen that in multiple studies of mine now. And because of that, I don't think it's going away. So I think that it's important to try to recognize that importance and to try to find ways to support narrative continuing in some form. So, and I guess just one thing kind of stepping back. So in our paper in International Journal of Medical Informatics from 2018, we put forward an argument about narrative being kind of like a fundamental characteristic of psychosocial information. And we argued that it was different from clinical information because you know it doesn't mean the same thing for every patient. So whereas like an HbA1c likely means the same thing in most patients, saying low social support might mean something very different depending on who the patient is and what the circumstances. And so we argued that you need to understand the circumstances in order to understand the meaning and significance. And you know, this kind of links a bit to this whole line of work on narrative medicine and that there is a kind of narrative way of knowing that's really important for developing empathy and things like that. You know, in terms of how research can help, I think that we need to do some more work to try to understand clinician uh, writing and reading practices around narrative. I think methods to try to involve patients in generating narratives or visualizations of narratives, like 
information science, one of the methods that sometimes people use are having patients draw timelines of major events in their illness and things like that. So having some methods to engage patients around that. And then there's this whole line of work in HCI that I think is really exciting about narrative visualization. So it's about an active area of work looking at things like genres and techniques for sequentially addressing people's attention, highlighting key observations, uh, keeping them oriented across transitions. This could really help in the area of adjusted treatment by helping clinicians better understand what's important from the patient's perspective. Um, So for example, they might know that financial burdens and medical debts are critical because they're underlying somebody's quality of life. And so that might be the thing to prioritize. And then I think it also helps to understand the detail and nuance to help it make it clear what is the appropriate intervention. So for example, you might say somebody has transportation barriers but you know, it might look really different. Like maybe they just can't drive themselves, but they have somebody else who can drive for them sometimes. Or when you think about social support, you know, is it that they don't have somebody available to them if there was a hypoglycemic episode, which is one form of isolation, or is it they, they don't have somebody who could drive them after a medical procedure home? And that's a, a different kind of social support barrier um, about the resources you have in your social life. So I think that like we need to understand that nuance in order to really understand what that intervention should be. And I think that narrative is the thing that really helps get to that level of work. Terrific. Well, there's probably many more hours of this conversation, but unfortunately we have to leave it at that today. And I love leaving it with this concept of narrative because at the end of the day, that is what it's about. It's about the patient and their story um, and how do we make adjustments uh, that reflect what's best for them. So I want to uh, just express my gratitude to you, Tiffany, uh, for a lively discussion and thank all of you for joining us today. Uh, Stay tuned for our next session on July 30th, uh, where Dr. Kedar Mate and Dr. Saul Wiener will explore the promise and pitfalls of contextualizing care. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science Series, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art, and Aurelien Jukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb, Dylan Gonzalez, and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produced the podcast and the live event series. Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the Regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.